Thank you, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise to God this morning. So, theme of our song, as well as the theme of our morning message, is the holiness of God and what that means for us as the people of God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. One of the things that we as a church desire to see in God's people is that we would develop a, a high view of God, that we would have a, uh, if you will, a right view, a biblical view of God, and a biblical view of God is a high view of God. Oftentimes, we, uh, when we think of God, especially when we are unbelievers, we, we made him into our own image. We made him like ourselves. We thought of him like maybe, well, not ourselves, like our grandfather, perhaps, or our father. But God is greater than our fathers or our grandfathers. God is greater than any human kind of perception that we can have of him. God is most clearly seen in his word. And when we study his word, we see more of who he is, more correctly, more rightly, have a, and we develop a high view of God. In fact, it's because of that high view or a biblical view of God that we all came to salvation in Christ. It's only because we came to recognize that God is holy that he is just, that he's a God of wrath, but he's also a God of love and mercy. And because of that realization of this wonderful truth of the gospel that is so amazing, and we believe that there is this God who is able and loving and good to offer us this salvation from sins, that we approach him, that we respond and, and obey in believing him for the forgiveness of our sins. And that view of God as we grow in our Christian life develops. We develop over time. We, we grow to know God more as we study the word. And as we grow to know God more, it, it changes us. It makes us and motivates us not only to be like him, but it affects us in everything we do. And one of the things that we often emphasize uh, in, as a response to who God is within the body of Christ is, among many things, is to serve the Lord, to serve him with all our lives, to serve him within the body of Christ, to serve him in the world. Serving the Lord when we, as people, the people of God can be a very formal thing. It can be, you can have a particular ministry, as some of you do here in the church, or it can be very informal. We've often, there's a book that calls it, the, there's a ministry called the Ministry of the Pew, you know. It's just when you fellowship and you encourage one another, even just kind of in between the morning service and after the services, because you're encouraging one another in the pews, well, which is called the morning the ministry of the red chairs. Uh, that's really what it is. Minister serving can be a part of a regular ministry, but it can just simply seeing a need and responding to that need as the occasion arises. Our service to the Lord is not just to the Lord, but it's manifest and made manifest oftentimes in our service to people, to the body of Christ, to the world out there. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 is a passage that says, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
We are called as Christians, as followers of Christ, to be his servants, to serve one another, to serve the Lord through the gifts that God has given us. And this only comes when we have a high view of God. It can only be done rightly when we have a right view of God. Are you serving the Lord in, as a result of your view of God? Are you serving him in the body of Christ? Are you serving him in the world because of who he is? And as I look around this room, I know many of you are. And that encourages me as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd. But I know that for all of us, myself included, there can be times and seasons where we may not be serving the Lord. We may, for circumstances, uh, maybe that are our life situations, but sometimes it's because of our own hearts. Sometimes we forget who God is. Sometimes we forget how great, holy, glorious, majestic he is. And we begin to do ministry if, or not do ministry in inf- with, a, with a callousness, a half-heartedness even. Uh, some of us, even, I, even as a pastor, there have been times where I would serve the Lord with a half-heartedness. Can anybody relate? But this passage this morning is a wonderful reminder, a wonderful encouragement to us to once again see God for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, it should rightly, it's those who are the people of God, motivate us to respond in a way, not only in our life, but in our service to the Lord in a way that honors him and glorifies him. Today's passage teaches us some vital responses for those who serve the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, we've been in Isaiah, and it's been a while since we've been in Isaiah. Uh, appreciate Pastor Alton's ministry in the church since he's come back. It's, he's been a blessing and preaching to us over the past month or so. But we, as we come back to Isaiah, we remember that this book is about salvation. It's about the judgment of the people of God, and, but also the deliverance of the people of God. And as we come to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, we, chronologically, it's, uh, it's, we're going to look at it in a bit. It actually takes place chronologically before what we studied so far in chapters 1 to 5. Thematically, chapters 1 to 5, though, provide the introduction to all these major themes of judgment and deliverance. And so as we, and it is in Isaiah chapter 5 particularly where God expressed his condemnation for the people of God, Israel, for their, he pictured using the image of a vineyard for his disappointment in them because they had not been fruitful. And so with that condemnation, and ultimately their, their unfruitfulness was because they did not know, nor as well as they rejected God's word. And so with that, then comes Isaiah 6, where Isaiah describes in, in first person, so he's, his focus is on his own experience. It's like he's running, this is what happened to me. He said, this was my call to be a prophet of the word of God to the people of God. It's God's calling to him. And I believe as we look at God's calling to Isaiah, that we will gain uh, insight, encouragement for us as we continue to fulfill God's calling for us to serve him in the body of Christ. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, let's hear 
than what God's word has to say. Isaiah writes, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understanding with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. As we look at this passage, these 13 verses, we can divide it pretty clearly into two parts. And in these two parts, we see two vital responses from Isaiah that can be an encouragement for us who serve our holy Lord. So that's going to be our simple outline today, two, two responses, two vital responses for those who serve our holy Lord. And the first response we find is in verses 1 through 7, and that is the response to God's holiness. Here we see Isaiah responding, describing for us how God appeared to him, gave him a vision, and he then responded to that vision. The vision for us of God is described for us in verses 1 to 5. According to verse 1, this vision takes place in the year of King Uzziah's death. And remember chapter 1, verse 1 describes how Isaiah served actually through the reigns of four different kings. And the first of those kings was King Uzziah, also named King Azariah. And according to 2 Chronicles chapter 26... Uzziah was actually one of the good kings. He was many of the Judah, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, were good kings. He was a good king, but though a good king, he was not perfect. Yet in the same Chronicles, it describes him as being one who did right in the sight of the Lord. He reigned for a long time, 52 years, practically a lifetime. He was one who was known as who, to have sought the Lord, and he was faithful to build up the might of the nation of Judah. But in the end of his life, King Uzziah's life, his successes, according to 2 Chronicles 26, made him proud. And then he, one day he dared to take upon himself the role of priest. 
In those days, kings, priests, prophets were very distinct roles. But he became he who was king took the took the role of a priest and offered incense to God. Maybe he even meant well in doing so. He wanted to honor God by worship, offering the incense even. But that was an act of disobedience to God. And for that unfaithful act, God struck King Uzziah with leprosy to the day of his death. Uzziah's tragedy served as a powerful testimony of the seriousness of disobeying God's word. We learn from his life that even kings are not above God's law. We, in our world, we, we tend to think that, oh, man, those who are in power, those who are, have money, they get away with everything. They often are above the law. Maybe man's law, but not God's law. No one is above the law of holy God. All are judged by God in his holiness. And this was the setting for Isaiah's vision. When we, can wrote, we read in verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So this is a, a vision that Isaiah has. He's continuing the visions he describes in, from chapter 1. And he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the, the temple. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He saw God on the throne. Here, as he was watching in, in the final year of King Uzziah's death, and probably it's near the, that year before King Uzziah's death, he sees his king dying, imperfect, though good king, yet because of his own his sin, he was dying of leprosy. And yet, when he, and Isaiah sees the vision of God, he sees, in contrast to the human king, the divine king, the king of kings. And he describes God, this, the divine king's majesty and glory. He describes him as being lofty and exalted. Words that really just simply mean that he's high above us. Something that's high. Something that, you know, when we go look at places, you, always, you go to travel to cities, what do you go to visit? You will go to the high places, right? You go up to those towers. You look for the tallest thing in, in the city. You say, oh, I'm going to go up that thing. And here in San Francisco, it's the Koi Tower. You know, not really high, but it's kind of high. You get up there. You want to take a look around. God is high and lofty. He deserves it. And, and when, you, when you see it, you want, wow. It should draw, it causes us, causes Isaiah to be amazed. It's all furthermore, he's described as God's train. The train of his robe fills the temple. And this is a... This is probably just, it can be, some think that this could be the uh, earthly temple, but it's probably a vision of a heavenly temple. Instead, because the Lord is sitting on this throne, there's no throne in, in the temple, earthly temple. Uh, there's a throne in heaven, though, that we see described in other places. And Isaiah so saw the Lord sitting on this throne, and his train, the train of his robe filling the temple just reveals to us that his glory fills the whole place, that he fills the whole room. And even his train is that glorious. Notice even there's very little description of God himself here, the Lord himself. And it's just kind of consistent with even um, uh, sometimes when God described that his glory is so great that just to describe his throne, uh, to describe the, his robe, these things are, uh, are enough just to, describe, to convey the majesty of God. It's interesting, if we look at the cross-reference of this verse in John chapter 12, verse 41, we'd find that there John identifies that the Lord that is described, that is seen in this vision here, is equated with Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. That Isaiah saw the glory of him in that verse, really the him that referring to Jesus. 
So it's interesting that John sees that this is the, a, a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. So it's God, it's Jesus, and, and it's definitely the Spirit of God. This is the, we believe in the Trinity here is being is manifest. The Lord Jesus, though, is not alone, even or the God is not alone as he sits on his throne in this vision. We look at verse 2. We see that he's surrounded by angels. Verse 2, seraphim, it says, stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. This is the only place in the scriptures where we see seraphim referred to. Uh, seraphims are just a type of angels. They're, sometimes we hear of cherubim or we see of these living creatures as Revelations 4 describes. And, and these are angelic beings. This, uh, the, in fact, Revelation 4, if you in our Revelation class, you probably would have covered this. The four living creatures around the throne of God there also have six wings. So perhaps it's equated. Maybe they're similar. They're, they're the same angels. But the word seraph that's used here means uh, burning ones. And so likely the term was used because these angels looked like they were burning, like they were great light, a bright light. So these, appear, they, these angels appeared as a fiery being. Yet even as they appeared as a fiery being, these holy angels had to cover themselves from the greater glory of God. The seraphim's actions are understood in, in light of, of what they reveal to the Lord in verse 3. In verse 3 we read, and one called out to another and said, and here's our very famous line in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels declare to one another, and maybe there's a, there's a sense, maybe they're declaring back and forth to one another. Maybe there's a, there's a course. They say one, the first part, the other one says the second part. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They declare the holiness of God. The word holiness means set apart. and describes how God is wholly separate from his creation. This separation is also a separation from sin and evil. And that's why we often think of the word holy referring to moral purity, the, moral, the complete absence of sin. God is that. He is morally pure and uncorrupted by sin. That is how he is holy. But he's holy also in an otherworldly sense, and he's quite different from anything that we see in this world. He's not like anything in this world. In every attribute that he possesses, he is unlike anything in this world. He is holy. Revelations 4.8, the four living creatures there continually declare something very similar. They, this, there they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. It's interesting, and as even as we think, we just stop here. We could probably just do a whole message just on the theme, holy, 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 on the holiness of God. That is the essence of God's nature. If we could, if we could choose one attribute of God that stands out before, but to be biblically correct, God's attributes, are, he has, possesses them all in, in, infinite equal, in infinite equality. But this one is the first. It has precedence, if you will. It's one that is declared. It's not love, 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 or mercy, 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 or kindness, kindness, kindness. It's holy, holy, holy is who God is. The threefold repetition of the word holy here is also uh, very likely a hint of the triune nature of God. We know of the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's likely and very likely that that's the case here, that the holy, holy refers to the three of them. 
but not only do the angels declare God's holiness, and this, this passage doesn't just describe God's holiness alone, but they also declare God's glory. Notice they says the whole earth is full of his glory. That is, his glory fills the whole earth. That everywhere that the world looks, just like the train, his train fills the temple, God's glory fills the whole earth. If you had eyes to see, if we were not blinded by our own finite eyes and we had and the eyes that God would give us, we would see God's glory everywhere. We'd see his majesty, his power. We'd see his divine nature. We'd see his uh, invisible attributes everywhere that we look. And we get the sense of that even as uh, those of us who live in this world. Many of us who... Uh, who have the opportunity to, to look at under the microscope and, and see a single-cell embryo, we see the glory of God. For in that single-cell embryo is all that is all the life that possesses that God has ordained to grow up, to be born, and to become one of us, one of you. We all began in that single-cell embryo. Just in that is the glory of God made manifest. And then when we look through, not only from Microsoft, some of us get to look through telescopes. Some of us get to look at the galaxies beyond and to see the, the countless stars, the countless and even furthermore countless planets and be amazed by it all. We see God's power, God's invisible attributes, God's divine nature, his ability, his we realize that God has created this, and it all works in such a way together. We are amazed when we see God's glory. We see God's handiwork everywhere. In this verse, we see God's holiness. We see God's glory being declared. This revelation of God is manifested physically as well. It's not just something that Isaiah just saw, it says, and he, or that is, he heard among the, the angels declared to one another, but he actually sensed there, there was a response to this declaration of God's holiness and God's glory. In verse 4, we see that the, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. These, uh, term, this imagery here of trembling and smoke are symbolic of God's glory, or they always accompany the manifestation of God's glory. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, when God's glory descended upon Mount Sinai, there we would also find that smoke appeared in God's glory, because God at that time appeared with them, to them in a, in a pillar of clouds at times, and there would be smoke, there would also be trembling, the mountain would shake when God would descend. And so this was the vision that God, that of God that Isaiah saw. Many of us, uh, I know when I was a younger believer, I thought, oh, man, I just want to see God. I mean, just if I could see God, especially, uh, then it would be like, I'd be so, like, stoked. I really believe in him. I would, man, I just, I would go and become a pastor, you know, if I just saw him. I'd go tell the world that, you know, I'm being a missionary for life. Just if I only could see him, you know, like some of you will see him. Maybe we think that'd be cool, but the truth, as we look at the Bible, if it actually happened to us to see God, it would not be that cool. We would respond, even as Isaiah responds, as any, everybody else responds to the holiness of God, that, we would, that would be a response of fear and trembling. We do not realize how terrifying it is for sinners to look upon the holiness of the living God. We do not realize it because we think more of ourselves than we ought. We think that somehow we can actually approach God. That he's our buddy. 
Certainly as Christians, we can approach him. But we should even be more awed by how, that we can, how it is that we can. And so we see in verse 5, Isaiah's response to the holiness of God, to this vision of God. In verse 5, he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah immediately in the response, recognizes his own sin. He doesn't say, oh, cool. No, he says, whoa. You know, not, I mean, the whoa, whoa. No, that's too high. Whoa is me. I am ruined. The word uh, ruined, it really means I'm, be- I'm destroyed. I'm cut off. I'm undone. Isaiah real- recognizes as he approaches, even sees this vision of the whole God, that no man can stand before him because of our sin. Isaiah immediately becomes aware of his unclean lips, of his sin. And it's just kind of like when you approach a, a mirror, you know, especially in this dim lighting. You can't see yourself. You go, oh, yeah, I look okay. But when you have a lot of light, when you, there's bright light and kind of equivalent to God's glory, man, you see all your imperfections. You realize, oh, man, I don't want to look at that. But God, Isaiah, as he approaches this bright light of 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 God, this glory of God, this holiness of God, he sees himself very clearly. And he sees himself like a mirror. He sees his, he doesn't, he sees his own sinfulness in relationship to the holiness of God. And he declares himself to be a sinner. It's interesting. He declares himself to be a sinner, a man of unclean lips. He doesn't talk about his, his thoughts or he doesn't talk about his actions. He immediately thinks about his lips, the things that come out of his mouth. He was a man whose words were sinful. He recognized that all that comes out of his mouth are oftentimes unworthy of God. A lot of times we think of our sins as being the things we do. Do we think about the sins as the things we say? Isaiah recognizes not only his own sinful speech, but he then recognizes his people's sinful speech as well. He says, I'm a man, I come from a people of unclean lips. And so he respond, Isaiah responds rightly to God's holiness with holy, humble reverence. He responds with a recognition and conviction of his sin. But what Isaiah could not do about his sin, God does. God does. And we see in this, in this continued response to God's holiness, the provision of God in verses 6 to 7. Isaiah, left to his own course, he, would have nothing, he could do nothing about his sin. He would just simply perish. But instead, we read in verse 6 and 7, then... One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This continuation of the vision is, um, uh, is that the angels, presumably through the instruction of God, are, who, are, who serve the Lord, fly to him with a burning coal taken from the altar that is before the Lord. Even there's a whole bunch of imagery there, even in the, of this uh, perhaps uh, very, uh, of, uh, in, in imagery that we could even think about how Christ, uh, the sacrifice would be the provision by, for our sins. But and nevertheless, this coal is taken, and, it, and the angel touches Isaiah's lips. It's a provision from God himself, and when touching his lips from God, the angel declares that because it's touched him, because God has provided it, his iniquity is taken away. His sins are forgiven. 
And that's how God forgives us. It's not that we can go and take a cold. It's not that we can go do anything. This is just a picture of God's grace, isn't it? God himself always provides the provision for our cleansing and forgiveness. And he does so here with Isaiah. This provision of sin, of course, though, as believers of Christ, we know is fulfilled in the death of the very one who is sitting on this throne, according to John. That's the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It is his death that would pay for our sins. So Isaiah's ministry begins with a high view of God, a biblical view of God, a right view of God, which leads them to humble reverence, a recognition of his sin that requires the provision of God to cleanse. And in the same way, you and I must also answer to God's call, God's call to serve him with a similar high view of God. We must, too, similarly respond with not only understanding who it is that calls us to serve him, but then understanding who we are in light of him. That we are sinners in need of his grace, who have only can stand before him, only can serve him because of God's provision to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you have a high view of God? Do you recognize your own sinfulness? Have you received the provision of your forgiveness in Christ? If you have, then you are one who is ready. Maybe you probably already are, but you're ready to respond to God's calling to serve. And we observe the second vital response then in verses 8 to 13. And that's the response to God's calling. Isaiah's response is described for us to God's commission of him, to God's call of him, if you will, in, verse, in these verses. We see God's call. Now, now that Isaiah has been consecrated and set apart, made holy, made his, his lips made holy and cleansed, there is the call of God in verse 8. Then Isaiah writes, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. It's very it's very fascinating that unto this point, Isaiah had only heard the seraphim's voice. But now he hears the, Lord, the Lord's voice, the voice of the Lord. And what is the Lord asking for? The Lord is asking for a messenger. He's asking for someone to send. He's asking someone to go. A messenger in the context of Isaiah, really, of a messenger to be sent to his people to, to give a message of prophecy to them. The wording of the latter part of this question, where he says, who will go for us, is theologically significant, isn't it? Like the trifold holy in verse 3, this, phrase, this question, who will go for us, again, hints at the Trinity. The triune Godhead speaks to one another. God in his decrees, is, he, speaks to one, he speaks among themselves in making their decrees and deciding what to do, just as they did in the creation of man in Genesis 1.26. Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Here is a, one of those questions that is a life-changing question from God. You know, if you were Isaiah and the Lord came and asked you this very question, how do you think you would respond? When I thought about it myself, I, I thought, uh, maybe some of you will think the same way, that I thought, man, I, I think I'd respond with a little bit of hesitancy. I think I'd, I'd have doubts. I think, I'd, I think I'd be like Moses. <laughs> in our 
in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, when God called Moses, Moses who would become the greatest Old Testament prophet, the one who would write the first five books of the law. Even Moses, when he received God's call, how did he respond? He didn't respond like Isaiah did. But he responded with a hesitance, with a reticence, with a, just, you know, hoping to an avoidance. Even after hearing God specifically say, specifically promise that he was going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses doesn't say, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm eager. Let me go. What does he say? He's, he just focuses all instead on what God says and what God promised and who God is, this who has appeared to him in a fiery bush, spoken to him audibly even. Moses, Moses thinks about himself as many of us often do. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He says, what shall I say to them? He says, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? And he says, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses even goes as far to ask God to send someone else. This is a good idea. Send someone else to do it. Moses had focused on himself, whereas Isaiah focused on God. The Lord had given a clear vision of God's holiness and glory to Isaiah. And when Isaiah responds, when Isaiah responds with, his, with humble reverence and conviction of sin, God encouraged him by purifying him, his lips, consecrating him for the task. And so Isaiah responds to God's calling with an eager service, eager service. And he says, here am I, send me. And that should be our response. Here am I, send me to do what you call me to do. Now, it's true that God may not call you to a life of full-time ministry. He does not call everyone to the work. He does not call everyone to do, go out and become a full-time missionary. But every Christian is called by God to do something. Every Christian is called to be a servant of the Lord. In fact, we're all servants of the Lord. We all serve the Lord according to Colossians 3.24. We serve him in the body. We serve him in the world. Knowing that God calls you to be a servant, his servant, can you say, here am I, Lord, send me to wherever and to whomever God's call, your call will take me. If we are hesitant, then we need to return to examine our view of God. Return to our focus on God, just like Isaiah does. Isaiah's willingness to answer God's call is further tested by the mission that God gives to him. And we see in verse 9 to 13 the, an elaboration of this mission. We call it the commission, I call it the commission of God in verses 9 to 13. And that is what Isaiah's ministry will entail as he responds to God's call to him to go and tell his people and be sent from the Lord to tell his people. Verse 9, God said, he said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. These first two verses must have been, or these, must have been a real shock to Isaiah when he heard them. 
Can you imagine? God says, I hear, who, who will go for me? Who will I send? He said, oh, I'm going to go. I'll be your messenger. And then he said, well, go, go tell them this bad news. Go tell them that they're not going to listen to me. Go tell them that they're not going to repent. And go tell them. And tell them. Go to people, basically, who will not listen to you. He expected, whereas Isaiah probably expected a ministry that would lead to repentance in the nation, God informs him that his ministry would be, a me- would be a message that is largely one of judgment, a message that would be lo- ignored and misunderstood. But I think when we look at the Bible, Isaiah's ministry here should be the ministry that all of us would expect if it were not for the grace of God. We are reminded here of a principle that is true about all mankind. That as a result of our fallen nature, mankind rejects God's word whenever we hear it. We don't want to hear God's word. We don't want someone else telling me how to live my life. I'll only listen to God if it makes me feel good, if it kind of works with my program, with what I'm doing. To actually have God tell me how to live my life, how to approach him, how to think of him, how to speak, how to act, how to live, is to a selfish, sinful man like myself, like all mankind. We really don't want to hear it. We reject it. And this is the reality of mankind. And that's why Isaiah's ministry is described in this way. We find these verses, in fact, verse 9 and 10, but probably the, of, this, of this chapter, more quoted of all the verses in this chapter. It's the most quoted. We think holy, holy, holy is the verse. But really, verse 9 and 10, these are the key verses. These are repeated in the New Testament at least six different times. It was used at least two occasions in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 13, verse 14 to 15, and John chapter 12, verse 40. It was used further to describe Paul's ministry in Rome in Acts 28, verse 26 through 27. And there, in each case, it's, it was used to describe as the ministry, though God would send Jesus or Paul or others to proclaim the, the gospel, the, his truth, people would be hardened to it. They would not listen. They would not respond. And this verse would be, in a sense, a Fulfilled in those instances where people do not respond to God's word because of their hardened hearts. It's not necessarily that, and it's not because God intentionally, God is the one who, who is the one who actively hardens them, but simply because God lets them, pe- people, mankind, live and act in their own way, in accordance with their own will. And man in our sinful, fallen will will always choose to not obey. To do what is, pleases us and not what pleases God. It's only when God, and here's the miracle, it's only when God himself opens our eyes and ears that we can actually hear and see the truth, right? Many times, uh, just a couple weeks ago, we had many of our saints share their testimonies of salva- saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I love it because when they share about the gospel, it is really many times I hear how God opened their eyes. God was the one who caused them to see their own sinfulness, their need. It's God who does a work of saving faith. Here back to the text, in Judah, in the nation of Judah, God was going to allow a hardening of the nation's heart so that they would not respond to Isaiah's prophetic ministry. Isaiah's ministry would be not, would be not a ministry of deliverance but a ministry of judgment. The people of Judah had rejected God's word for too long. And it's just like that. When you reject God's word time and time again, what happens is that we become calloused in our hearts. A hardening of our hearts takes place. 
Now God is a, says in this, in this commission to Isaiah that he's going to allow the nation to experience the full repercussion of their sin. And when Isaiah hears this, he doesn't say, whoa, whoa, can you send somebody else? We see by Isaiah's response, he accepts his ministry as revealed by his follow-up question in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And that's a wonderful truth here. I, even as he asks this, if I could read between the lines, you see Isaiah's compassion for his people. He wants to preach to them. He wants to see them come. But he also is concerned for how long is this going to last? How long will this judgment be upon these people? Some of us are too eager to see judgment come upon people. That judgment will come. We should be like Isaiah even and want to see an end to judgment Instead, a time for God to renew his commitment, to fulfill his commitment to, to his chosen people and bring them to saving faith. But nevertheless, we see the response to, we see the response to Isaiah's question in verse 11 answered by God. And God says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He said Isaiah's ministry would continue until Judah would be taken into captivity. That the, God would allow his, the, the full course of their sin to run. And in fulfillment to his promises to them in the law, God would take them out of the land. The description of these verses describe the destruction of Judah by a foreign nation. Cities would be devastated. Cities would be made empty. The land would be laid desolate and forsaken. The Lord himself would take the people of God of Judah far away. They would be removed into exile. And we know in the rest of the Old Testament, this is consistent with the conquest of Judah by the nation Babylon and the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C., as well as subsequent captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And yet, despite the promise of this judgment, this is what Isaiah's ministry would entail, that he would preach a, a really a message that would not be heard, but a message that would be recorded so that to show that God is faithful and just to keep his word but also at the same time, it's a message that would be recorded for us to show that God is faithful to keep his promises to save. He offers a message of hope in verse 13. Yet, God says, there will be a tenth portion in this land. Though the land will be desolate, though it will be emptied, though people are going to be sit, uh, taken away, yet there will be a tenth, a ten percent of the land, of the people, the land will be remain. A remnant, we, we've talked about this in previous messages. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak. And though there's a, a remnant of people there, they're not gonna, it's not going to be all happy, go lucky for them. They're going to experience judgment. They're going to be subject to burning. They'll be like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. It'll be like a tree that's chopped down. I have a big oak tree, I think, in my neighbor's yard. It's humongous. You know, you can't, I wouldn't mind just cutting it, cutting it down because all the mosquitoes fall down and what's all. But... They will, if you cut it down, there'll still be a stump that remains. But God says that stump, it's as though it will be cut down, like it, the tree will be cut down, though it'll be subject to burning. He says the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. And this is where the holy seed for many of the Israelites would be a reminder of them of God's promises. God made promises to Abraham and his seed, Isaac and his seed, Jacob and his seed, to David and his seed, his descendants who would come after them. And so the holy seed, really the people of God, the holy, the holy nation of Israel, is in that stump. That though everything is destroyed, 
that that holy seed remains in the land, that stump. And this is a promise that God would, that this is a promise that God says there will be a remnant in the land. He would preserve a remnant of his people within the land. In fact, we even know that later on in the rest of Isaiah, he'll talk about how he would return some of those who go into captivity to the land as well. We learn then that Isaiah's commission from the Lord would be that of a prophetic ministry of judgment. That's his ministry. To declare people to feel that they are coming to judgment, under judgment. And in response to this commission, Isaiah doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, oh, send somebody else. He doesn't second-guess, Lord, maybe there's another plan. No, he accepts his ministry. He faithfully fulfills it because he believes that God's plan is the best. He trusts the Lord for the results of his ministry. And I think that Isaiah's response here it can be an encouragement to us as we serve the Lord. Surprisingly, we also have a ministry that declares judgment, doesn't it? Don't we? Before we, yes, we, may, we like to think of the salvation that's coming, this great deliverance and joy in salvation in Christ. But there's actually, before we even get there, we must declare the message of judgment. That God is going to judge a holy God, sinful mankind. And this is really what is entailed, what is entailed in us as we are called as the people of God to make disciples of all nations. Our calling, our commission is to make disciples, is it not? And like Isaiah's ministry, many people will reject our message. In fact, that's probably our most common experience. When you share the gospel, more often than not, people respect, reject the message. They don't want to hear the message. It's why most of us are hesitant to share the gospel. If everybody that we shared the gospel would receive the gospel, man, we'd be out there right now. Just, yeah, yeah, come and believe in Jesus. Because people respond, but no, they don't. Most reject. And not only is it they reject the gospel, but many times it's even in the church. Many people that we disciple will fall away. This is not just true of our ministries, it's true of Jesus' ministry. Think of John chapter 6 where many who were following him fell away. But we can fulfill, faithfully fulfill our ministry because we know that were it not for God, no one would believe. No one would respond. It's because of God that there, is, there, there will even be a sum. Actually, the Bible would say a few, the narrow gate. A few who will respond and hear the words of Christ. We can't control who believes, but we can control our own response to God's calling. And we can respond with an eagerness to serve the Lord. Despite the truth, you should make sure you understand the truth that this is a message that will not be readily received by the world. But yet, because of our view of God, we should be able to say, here am I, send me, Lord. I'm eager to do it. As we conclude, our primary task is to make disciples, to speak the truth of God so that we might evangelize the world and edify the church. Sometimes we might wish that we, would, that we could have a vision of God like, like Isaiah. Sometimes I think we wish that we could have just, just once, just hear an audible calling of God. You know, maybe you've heard people say that. Oh, I heard God's voice. I really saw it. I had people, friends tell me, I actually saw I was in a drunken stupor, and then I saw this bright light, and I, and I believed. I, I've, heard, I've had people uh, tell me those kind of testimonies. 
You think sometimes you think, oh, wow, that'd be cool. I've not seen a vision like that. I've not heard God speak to me like that. If only God would do that, then I would serve the Lord as eagerly as Isaiah. Perhaps that's what you're thinking today, but I would, add, I would want to encourage you that you won't have a vision of God like this, as Isaiah did. You won't receive an audible calling from God as Isaiah did. And you won't because God has given you something better. God has given us his son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, and that includes visions and as, as well. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isaiah saw a vision of the holiness and glory of God. Jesus is the holy and glorious God. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus is clearly revealed to us and preserved for us in his word the scriptures, the New Testament particularly. And when we want to have a vision of God, we need no longer need look, look no further than his word. You want to hear God's words to you, we no need, no, don't need to look any further than his word. For in his word, we receive all the vision we need. In his word, we receive all his, his speaking that we need. And it's sufficient. It is more than sufficient because in his word, we receive and we see Jesus. Jesus, who is the Lord. This one who made, made purification for our sins by his death on the cross and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and now seats, sits at the right hand of God the Father. And there he sits on the throne awaiting the consummation of the ages, awaiting for Revelation 4 and beyond. The coming judgment that is described in Revelation. And there, we, if you get a chance to look there, it always begins once again with the declaration of the holiness of God. But until then, our calling is clear. Our calling is to make disciples. God has saved you. God has set you apart. God has spiritually gifted you for this calling to be his saints, his holy ones in the world, to make disciples of all nations. So how will you respond to this God, the holy, holy, holy one of God? May we all respond as Isaiah did, with humble dependence, and eager submission to his call. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to be men and women who imitate Isaiah as we respond to a vision of who you are. We thank you for this vision of who you are, for your holiness and glory. We thank you, Father, that as we come to have a greater view of who you are, it is, a, it is the motivation by which we respond. Lord, cause us to, if we have not already, respond to your holiness and glory with humble reverence, with the submission and recognition that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. 
Lord, if there's anyone here who has not come to that place, may you bring them to that place right now. Father, cause them to see that they are a sinner in need of salvation. Lord, may you cause them to see that you offer to them cleansing, forgiveness, just as even the seraphim brought that cleansing to Isaiah. But you offer that cleansing through Jesus Christ. You offer it through the once and for all sacrifice on the cross in your son. And Father, as those who have received the sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, through faith in Christ, Lord, will cause us to be people who respond to your call, who eagerly respond and recognize that whatever, because of, you, how much you, of who you are, what you've done for us, that we ought, to, we ought to be eager to do what you call us to do, to make disciples of all the nations. Lord, some of us are going about life half-heartedly serving you. Some of us are not even serving you. Father, may you, and some are faithfully doing so. But we pray that you would give us all a continued vision of who you are and recognizing, Lord, that our commission is much, not much different from Isaiah's, that we will speak your word to people who in and of themselves will not receive your word. But it is only by your grace, only because of your mercy, that there will be some, there will be a few, just like we did at one time. And Father, may we be faithful to share your good news then, to proclaim it, to tell others of Christ, so that they would not, be, so that they too would join us and be delivered from sin and not have to face your judgment, but be able to join us in worship and praise of you. Lord, give us all the attitude of Isaiah with eagerness, saying, here am I, send me to whomever and wherever your calling takes us. This we pray in Jesus' name, because of your holiness, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week as you go forth. Please exit out my left, your right, to, sit, uh, to Sunday school class in a little bit, and you're dismissed. <laughs>